Dr. Julio Friedman is a senior research scholar at the Center for Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. With a background in geology and degrees from MIT and USC, Dr. Friedman is now one of the most widely known experts on carbon removal, CO2 conversion and use, and carbon capture and sequestration. He has testified numerous times for the U.S. Congress and worked in the U.S. State Department, Environmental Protection Agency, and U.S. Treasury. In fall 2019, Dr. Friedman and the Center for Global Energy Policy released the report, Low Carbon Heat Solutions for Heavy Industry. Please enjoy this interview with Dr. Friedman, in which we discuss the issue of industrial heat, innovation agendas, and the nuances of creating technological change. Thanks so much for being willing to speak with me. My pleasure. So your work is mostly focused on carbon removal and use. So why did you decide to release a report on industrial heat uh, in late 2019? It was obvious that this was an important topic. Uh, The volume of emissions from just industrial heat, what I call burning rocks to melt rocks, uh, is more than all the cars and planes in the world. It is a huge fraction of global emissions and the amount of scholarship on it was effectively zero. And I kept hearing people saying stupid things like, well, we'll just electrify this stuff. And I'm like, you can't do that. (laughs) So I thought it would be helpful to put some numbers on it and put together a little information. And so uh, we now have two reports, one of which is really sort of detailed technical and economic analysis. The other of which is more sort of a sectoral and policy approach. Great. And, uh, So I was reading through your congressional testimony to the House Mm -hmm. Committee on Energy and Commerce, and uh, you and the other folks who are testifying called for an innovation agenda to specifically address this problem. So Mm -hmm. um, what does that sort of look like? Right. So you can think about this in sort of a handful of ways. The simplest way that the first approach is just we need widgets. We need stuff we don't have, right? So right now we've got, say, electrical boilers. We do not have electrical ethylene crackers. Like, so there's a certain amount of innovation that way. We, we want lower cost electrolyzers to make green hydrogen. We want novel high, uh, methane cracking technologies to make blue hydrogen. Like there's a, there's that sort of stuff. Second is actually implementation innovation. So let's say you have electricity, like how the hell do you put it into these systems? Like, like there's the, the plant, process design aspect, there's the integration aspect of it, which is important from an innovation perspective as well. And then the third is just the, the reimagining the systems piece. Uh, so by an example of reimagining the system is you can imagine biomass being a way to generate low carbon heat. Um, the way that we do it today, which is ship pellets from Alabama to London, is probably not the most innovative way to do this. Are there uh, other ways to think about uh, in creating the supply chains that we need to deliver the goods? Great. So uh, could you talk me through more or less like the big conclusions that you drew from putting this report together? Right. So a handful of big conclusions. The first one is no one's working on this. So people need to work on it. We're not going to hit our climate goals if we don't start dealing with industrial heat. Um, The second is that most of our options are pretty bad. Most of the tools that we have available to do this today are either flawed in terms of their viability or wickedly expensive or both. 
So uh, that leads to the third conclusion, which I already talked about. We need an innovation agenda around it. We also basically said, determined from our own work, it was almost impossible to find data on any of this stuff. Um, people track electricity flows through the economy. People track uh, gasoline flows and oil flows through the economy. They do not do that for heat. There is not an agency that compiles this data. There's not archives which you can go to and load it down. And even in terms of the things you might be able to provide uh, supplies to, let's say ammonia manufacturers or steel makers or something like that, it's split over dozens of agencies and dozens of sites. The data is old. Like we're just not even doing the foundational work you would want to do to start addressing this problem, which is measure it. Mm. Yeah, measuring is the first step to understanding, right? So here's a quick question for you. Any yeah. idea where the data on ammonia manufacturing is in the United States? Which agency on, does this? Ammonia uh, production. Ammonia? Uh, that's a good question. It seems like, to me, it would be something like the... Uh, like agricultural or something like that? Because you'd think it would be commerce or you'd think it'd yeah. be U.S. Department of Agriculture, maybe even Department of Energy. It's actually the U.S. Geological Service. Really? Yes. And that has to do with the fact that some 150 years ago or something, they considered ammonia to be a mineral resource and so put it under USGS. Oh, wow. So that gives you an example of how strange the data landscape for industrial heat is. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you called for in your testimony was to create this sort of um, bridge authority or some sort of uh, other method for all of these uh, right. agencies to talk to each other. Exactly. So we have a Department of Labor statistics. They gather labor data. Like we should have these kinds of things for industrial data and we don't. Hmm. Great. So you also mentioned several uh, policies, bills that are pending in uh, Congress right now. So mm -hmm. could you maybe talk through that and how they could spread? Sure. And since then, the landscape has changed quite a bit. Hmm. So, uh, for example, we now have something called the Clean Futures Act in the House, which has, I think, Title V, I think, is industrial decarbonization. And among other things, they propose new authorities for the Department of Energy to work on industrial uh, emissions reduction. Uh, they uh, call for government procurement in that to buy low carbon building materials, concrete and steel or low carbon fuels and chemicals as a way to stimulate those markets. Um, the, there's other examples of procurement authorities lurking through uh, bits of Congress. Uh, for example, the new highway authorization bill has draft language to buy low carbon concrete as a way to get low carbon cement uh, up and running. Uh, there's certainly components of an innovation agenda sprinkled here and there. So uh, Department of Energy has a biomass uh, research effort, the Bio Bioenergy Technology Offices, BETO. There's new appropriations and authorizations for them. Same thing for the Office of Fossil Energy and low carbon hydrogen production. Same thing and, and also on industrial decarbonization. Uh, also on CO2 conversion and use, that comes under the reimagining systems. If you can use CO2 to make these products, then that looks pretty different than the way we do it today. Uh, all of these things are sort of uh, in early days. Uh, I think the policy landscape is interesting and valuable, and I'm very eager to see it mature and 
uh, grow, but the state of the policy discussion reflects the state of our knowledge and the state of the data we have to frame the questions well. That makes a lot of sense. So uh, a lot of interesting things to dive into there. Uh, perhaps we could maybe go back a bit and understand maybe the historical context. Uh, you mentioned a couple things, for example, how the data for ammonia is in the USGS. Are there um, other, like, maybe there isn't data for this or uh, the data is all over the place, but um, are there, what is the historical innovation agenda been for um, like cement decarbonization or steel decarbonization? Right. So the historical innovation agenda has really been dominated by one and only one element, which is efficiency. Uh, and this is not a surprise because energy is such an enormous cost component of heavy industry is a high value proposition to efficiency. One of the things this means is that most of the low hanging fruit has already been picked over the past 40 years. The steel industry has increased its efficiency 60%. So there's not much more that they're going to get out of that. Right. But they're right. still working on that. Um, there has also been a long standing uh, sort of, academic thread on dematerialization by that saying can you use less concrete less steel uh, less carbon composites and so forth to do the same job so are there ways to reduce the consumption of these materials in our day-to-day -day lives um, that has a lot of scholarship it doesn't have a lot to show for it there's not a lot of demonstration uh, of how that gets done the overall premise is things like let's modify building codes to, to use better science to contribute to the dematerialization of skyscrapers. Um, that is a reasonable thing to propose. It actually means somebody has to get in there over years and change building codes. So far that hasn't gone very far. Mm. Um, the rest of the innovation agenda is basically stillborn. It's, there's almost nothing on it. There's a couple of examples here and there. So companies like Boston Metal, for example, that are trying to come up with electric uh, direct electric upgrading of iron ore to make primary iron. Like that's an interesting technology, but it's, there's not a deep bench of that stuff. There's sprinkling here and there of these kinds of things. And the primary reason why is because there's no money to support it. As a research scientist, it's hard to imagine somebody entering that field if they can't get paid. So until there are research grants and until there are companies doing that research, it's unlikely that we're going to see much of a change for that. Yeah, definitely. There seem to be a relative few amount of the companies in this space that I've seen. It's um, important to understand there's a policy antecedent to this. Many heavy industries are considered essential industries. For countries like Korea, like steel is an essential industry. Uh, and, and for Germany and for others. Same uh, for cement and concrete, those are considered essential domestic supplies. For chemicals and fuels, many of them are considered essential to day-to-day -day life. And again, as we said before, there aren't a lot of good options. So about 20 years ago, when people began to propose carbon limits, many of those industries were exempted by law. They stand outside the existing emissions reduction statutes, which meant they had very little incentive to work on it. So that's changed over the past few years. As countries' uh, ambitions have become uh, higher, uh, with respect to carbon reduction, as things like the one and a half degree report from the IPCC have made clear that we must have much more rapid and much more profound emissions reductions, people have begun to look at the industrial sector anew. The leaders of those companies and leaders in those countries have begun to take that challenge seriously. 
And so we're starting to see some evolution on that, but again, it's early days. Gotcha. That's really interesting to hear. And this is something you touched on a little bit earlier, but uh, the buy clean movement is something that you've been pretty involved in. So could you maybe expand mm-hmm. on that a bit? Right. It, it's a straightforward proposition. Uh, it's another way to create a market for low carbon materials. That's the basic idea. There's lots of different methodologies to create a market, but essentially one of them is start buying stuff. Uh, a bank shot on that approach is labeling. The idea is if you label things, then consumers will make smart choices. There's not a lot of evidence that's true, but that's the idea. For procurement, it's actually a more direct chain there, and it's particularly helpful in heavy industry. Governments buy 50% of the concrete in the world. Governments buy 20% of the steel of the world. Governments buy 5% of the fuels of the world. So their procurement authority has a much stronger lever. And so the idea is to just give governments the authority to start buying clean. In many cases, because these are complex technical issues, the definition of clean is left open, whether it's at the state government or at the federal government or a municipality, they often are leaving it to agency experts to define what that standard is. And that's, I think, appropriate. Uh, You want an organization like NIST doing this as opposed to the senior senator from Montana. Like you, and so they basically say, you have two years to figure out what the standard is, go do it. Um, And I think that's appropriate. But at that point, the agency will come out and say, we define clean in these terms. It has to, and clean can be defined in many ways, but one of those dimensions should be life cycle carbon footprint compared to some industrial average. And then they can basically say, we will create that standard, it'll ratchet down over a number of years, and we will start buying maybe 3%, maybe 5% of what's our total volume with the expectation that that will grow through time to 10% or 50%. Uh, And, uh, but buy clean basically is a procurement mandate. To be clear, this is something governments have done many, many times. The clearest example of this was that Congress mandated the Department of Defense to buy biofuels. They just said, go out and buy biofuels. That created biofuels companies overnight. That created biorefineries. Like, if you know that there is a military offtake agreement, you can use that contract to get financing for a project. And this is a different version of the same thing. Gotcha. So having that sort of stability allows for easier financing and innovation. Right. Almost every advanced technology began with government procurements. Semiconductors, flat screen TVs, and in the energy arena, uh, solar panels, batteries, fuel cells, like these were all government procurements. And that got us down a steep part of the learning curve. We should expect the same thing for these technologies. Cool. That's, that's really fascinating. Um, yeah. So maybe to speak a little bit on, on the costs, um, one thing that was really interesting to read was that um, essentially, even if you increase the cost um, of producing these materials, like cement, like a hundred times, the end product's cost is, the, it barely changes. Uh, could you maybe speak to that? Right. So uh, you misspoke when you said a hundred times, but uh, the, sorry, the general position yeah. is correct. <laughs> so for certain things, let's say you increase the price of cement a hundred percent, right? The cost of a bridge only goes up 1%. And a bridge is almost entirely concrete, right? <laughs> let's, let's be clear. Um, or the cost of a freeway goes up 1%. 
And the reason why is because most of the cost is in stuff like land costs, debt costs, labor costs. Um, the same thing is true for something like an automobile. Very little of the cost of an automobile is actually the cost of steel. Most of it is the cost of design, fabrication, marketing, you know, all of these other sorts of things. And so uh, be because these commodities are an arm's length away from most people, they don't quite understand what this means. Most people don't go to the store to buy 10,000 tons of concrete. Um, and so uh, it sounds like from a wholesale perspective, the cost will change a lot. And the reason why is because it will. But from the cost of a finished product, it's small. So if you triple the price of steel, the cost of a car goes up 2%. It's like, and, and that's an important finding to think about it. It's important to say that doesn't make it easy. Um, steel is one of the smallest margins, most tightly competitive markets in the world. A very small change in the price of steel for a manufacturer, say a half a percent cost or a 1% cost could place them out of the market completely. Many years, the margins are as low as 5%. Many years, they're negative margins. You're losing money on steel production, but you have to keep the facility running to stay in the market. And so uh, those very, very small changes of cost in a global commodity market look really different than say an electricity surcharge in your house. Like electricity is basically generated in a country and used in a country, right? That is not true for plastics. That is not true for ethanol. It is not true for, for methanol or ethylene or steel. And so uh, the economics of it are more complicated for that reason. So even though the cost of a finished good may change very little, the policy design necessary to bring that stuff to market is essential to avoid bad outcomes like just offshoring all your domestic production to Indonesia, which is not really what anyone's looking for here. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, along those lines, do you think that maybe something like buy, buy clean, but like buy private companies could have some pull, like a car manufacturers? Or? Yes, it could. Um, we have already seen that happen with companies like Walmart, where they just put out their own procurement standard. And they say, hey, everything's got to be this clean or, or we won't buy from you anymore, right? The same thing could be done uh, for automobile manufacturers, say. You could imagine just GM, or maybe the big three automobile makers in the United States saying, hey, you know what, in 2025, 6% of the steel that we buy is going to be low carbon steel, and whoever can supply that will pay a little extra for it, right? And that would create a race to the top in which people compete to make a low carbon product, okay? And how that is defined, it'll be complicated, et cetera, but there's a way to imagine that happening. Um, the challenge with that is you, if you were just GM doing such a thing, at the end of the day, you'd be increasing the cost of your car a little bit. You have to make sure that you're willing to do that. And in many markets, you're not. Hmm. Um, getting automobile manufacturers together to do it as a club is harder to do, but would actually yield a better outcome, both in terms of a higher pull and also avoid those kinds of challenges. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. 
And perhaps I should have dived into the little more technical details earlier, but uh, I'm curious um, specifically to address these in industrial heat problems. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned hydrogen as an option, electrification as an option. Um, could you maybe talk through generally what you think about those specific technical right. challenges? So there's a handful of challenges around industrial heat that are specific to industrial heat. One of them is actually just the quality of the heat. In many cases, it has to be high temperature. By high temperature, we're talking about above 500 Celsius. Um, for steel, it has to be above 1200. For concrete, uh, for cement above 1450. It just needs to be hot. There's not a lot of things that can deliver that. So that limits the field a lot. The second is the quality of the heat in terms of its flux. You need a lot of heat for a long time in enormous volumes, right? You can't melt iron ore with just, you know, a second of high temperature heat, right? There's another component of it, which is the deposition of the heat. You have to get the heat into the system. So you cannot, for example, electrify a cement kiln with resistive heating because you have to get the heat inside the system. So how you do that's problematic, actually. The, the actual transfer and deposition of the heat is difficult. And we have really put a lot of effort into optimizing deposition of heat through combustion. When you change away from a combustion-based system, you're changing just things a lot, right? Yeah. Um, the, the other thing, of course, are the reactor designs themselves. Um, in some cases, you can make a simple substitution of, say, hydrogen for natural gas. It is much harder to do for something like hydrogen for coal. Changing a solid handling system into a gas-based handling system is tough engineering. And, it, and again, the radiative heat transfer inside the body is, is very difficult. The last piece about this is that in some systems, like steelmaking, uh, the chemical oxidant agent, in this case the coke, is also a source of heat, and a big one. So, you know, you can't actually replace that easily. So you end up going to things like bio-coke. Hopefully you can make a structured biomass-based coke substitute. There's a little bit of work on that, but generally bio-coke has half the heat density of conventional coke. So how do you substitute for that? Ain't easy. So uh, most industrial systems are tuned over the last 200 years to develop a specific product in a specific way. When you monkey with that, you run into efficiency challenges, operational challenges, sensor and control challenges, all of these other things that are very real and hard to surmount. Definitely. And it seems that there's not a ton of research in, in this um, or like the very few developments. In Almost these... zero. Wow. Yeah. Uh, we found here and there, there are interesting things. So for example, the BioCoke example that we came across is something that Brazil tried. They're like, hey, we have all this biomass waste lying around. Maybe we can do something with it as a hedge against the low, low carbon future or as a low carbon option for imported Coke. In Japan, because they have a heavy steel industry and because they have a lot of interest in hydrogen, they began looking at hydrogen replacements for fuels early on and have run some pilots. Same thing with electrification. When they thought they were gonna be using a lot of nuclear energy, which they're not doing so much of these days, they thought, well, maybe we can do some steel electrolysis. Uh, there have been some pilots on things like uh, high temperature steam production through electrical heating, and mostly just electrical resistive heating of boilers. Uh, what most people don't realize is how much 
energy that actually requires. It requires huge amounts of energy, but you can do it. You can make steam electrically. We know that. And so then the question is, how do you put it into the system? Um, one of the big challenges here in terms of lack of research is a lot of scientists want to work on the big replacement thing. They're like, we're going to throw all that old stuff out. We're going to place it with some big shiny new stuff, right? If you do that, you are condemning ourselves to 30 years of emissions because the existing capital stock has a slow turnover rate. So yeah. there's a whole field of work to be done on retrofitting existing plants. Uh, the first cement plant I ever visited had been running for a hundred years and plans to run for another hundred years, right? <laughs> like that's, you know, a lot of the steel mills in the United States have run for 60 years and plan to run for another 60 years. So modifying existing capital stock is tough engineering work, right? And there's been almost no research on it. It's just one company here, one government there uh, for a couple of years, like we need a long sustained innovation agenda for these things. Wow. Okay. And with that, our time is almost up. We probably got yeah. time for one more question. Yeah. Uh, if you have anything more to say or just general thoughts to leave us with. The most important uh, thing I would suggest to you and to your uh, listeners is just learn something. Go out there and acquaint yourself with this. There's now some interesting roadmaps from the European Union. There's the true reports that I've written about. I'm pleased to say that industrial decarbonization has become a trending topic and within it industrial heat has emerged as its own need and people are starting to understand that uh, there was almost no scholarship three years ago there's enough now to educate yourself and once you learn a little bit you'll be in a position to start thinking through all of the challenges and problems and some of those are technical problems uh, in terms of engineering uh, some of those are market and economic problems. Some of those are policy and regulatory problems. Some of those are process engineering and supply chain problems. But boy, it, industrial emissions are 22% of global emissions. It's almost a quarter. Uh, and uh, there's almost nobody in this space. So if you educate yourself now, you're gonna be a global expert on this topic in five years. Great. Do you have anything you want to shout out, like your Twitter handle, which is excellent, by the yep. way? <laughs> uh, feel free to follow me uh, on Twitter, at Carbon Wrangler, one word. And I strongly encourage people to come to the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. That's energypolicy.columbia.edu. And you can find all of the work at the Carbon Management Research Initiative there. Great. Thanks.